Jesus was on the way to the cross, and this amazing act of generosity was given towards him. He had already been through uh, Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, and he was back in Bethany, we're told, in the house of Simon the leper. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were with him, and he's with a group of people that have experienced his grace. And Mary takes a jar of expensive perfume and she breaks it out on Jesus to worship him and to uh, acknowledge him as king and prepare him for burial. It was so extravagant that the disciples called it wasteful. But Jesus said, this is true worship and it will be remembered every time the gospel is preached from this point forward. And so we remember it today. It's a perfect expression of what was happening because God was offering His most gracious, generous gift of all time. It was rooted in the cross. It was a triune effort at generosity. We know it from the Scriptures. John says this, God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His Son. Anybody who's a parent knows the ridiculousness of that Scripture. He gave His Son. It's the ultimate that you can think of. Jesus says, no greater love is this than someone lay down to give His life for the sake of others. And as I was thinking about it this week, I thought the gift of the Holy Spirit, His generosity, is that He kept His hands off of it. Scripture says that Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. That's nothing to the Holy Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit reserve wanting to come in? Because this was the generosity of God to give. And Mary gives out of that same generosity. It was because of grace received and grace promised. Think about it for a moment. Mary experienced things from Jesus that she would never experience from any other man in society. Jesus invited her into the inner court. Jesus acknowledged her giftedness. Where Martha's gifting would have been the predominant gifting, the gifting of service for women, Jesus recognized that she was a uh, a contemplative and was pressing into that. Jesus made her feel worthwhile. She had received welcome from Jesus, and still the cross hadn't happened, which would be the ultimate welcome for her. She also lived with the promise of grace. She was there when she saw how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And you remember the conversation between Martha and Jesus, and Jesus identifies himself as the uh, resurrection and the life? Mary was worshiping him unto the grace that was promised that she was going to receive. You see, when you're saturated with grace, grace comes out of you. When you're saturated with the generosity of God, God's generosity comes out of you. We're entering into a four-week series entitled Generous God. And there's a subline to it because as God is generous in His giving, we will become generous givers ourselves. As people who have grace received and grace promised, the reflex for us as the people of God is to be generous. Now that touches every area of life, our time, our talent, our faith, but also our treasure. So we're going to press into the idea of being generous with our wealth over these next four uh, weeks. And today we begin with what I believe is the primary motivation to generosity, it's worship. So let's go to Psalm 96. Uh, I want encourage you to take your Bible out because I'm going to walk through some fun aspects of the text and it's going to help you to see it. If you're using your pew Bible and just getting familiar with the Bible, I'm going to remind you it's on page 634. 
We're going to walk into some of these elements, and we're going to become saturated with the generosity of God. Now, this is what is referred to as a royal psalm. It's a celebratory psalm where you're celebrating the faithfulness of God. It's also referred to as a reorientation psalm, perfect for uh, the beginning of a new year. Uh, Interestingly, uh, it's a royal psalm. I didn't think about it while I was preparing all week, but Friday was Epiphany. So this is Epiphany Sunday, and we're celebrating a royal psalm. Out of the royalty of our king, there's this generosity and bounty, and because of that, the worship community needs a new song to sing. And the psalmist gives us one of these songs, and it begins with this uh, imperative in the first three verses, a call to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. Now, I have underlined in my Bible, running in this uh, angle, sing, sing, sing. Uh, The triad calls the Hebrew mind to something unique. It's an invitation in, and it's the first of uh, three of six imperatives that the psalmist is giving to us, calling us to action. Sing, 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 bless His name, Barak. I love this word in Hebrew because it reminds me of my days of living in Mali. Uh, Mali's a blessing society, and when you would meet someone or leave them, you'd put your hands up and you'd say, Barakah. It was a loan word from the Arabic language. And Malians believed that words just weren't symbols, but they carried power. And so when you'd go, Barakah, you'd grab those words back. Oh, I just got Barakah. And Scripture says, bless the Lord. Isn't that kind of mysterious? The God who has everything, we have the privilege of blessing Him. Do you recognize the pleasure that He received this morning as you sang these songs to Him? It's not just us. It began early this morning. It, It began in Asia and it moved all the way across Poland and I think Brazil's a little ahead of us in the time zone. It hit Brazil and it's hitting us and it's gonna go keep going west. But each time that happens, if I can use this uh, anthropomorphic language of God, God sits in heaven and He goes, ah, that gives me pleasure. We give God pleasure when we worship Him. It's part of how He's created us. There's a mystery in it. Then it says, tell of His salvation. Literally, the word in Hebrew is proclaim or uh, give good news. If you could use it as a verb, it says, good news to announce good news. Celebrate the good news. And then declare, recount all of the things that he's done. Why? Because God is glorious. Out of his character, he's worthy of praise. That's doxology or praise. And out of what he's done for us, he's worthy of thanksgiving. See, worship is happening this way, vertically, it's doxology, and it's happening this way, horizontally, because it's calling all the rest of the people in. You know that feeling when you come to church and you're not sure why you're here, it's been a tough week, and you're struggling with things, and you don't have something to express, and immediately the praise team takes you into a song, and all of a sudden your soul is lifted up because... Worship begets worship. The bounty of God begets the bounty of God, and you're slowly moved in to your creative purpose. We were created to worship God. 
That was our first calling before the fall, was to ascribe glory to Him. Pastor Nathan gave it to us perfectly. I keep wanting to go up on my toes. We're bringing it to God for His glory. It's His declaration. As the the moon is noticeable to us, as it orbits around the sun and reflects the sun's brilliance, you and I are brilliant when we reflect the glory of God. The Kavada God, when that comes off of us in the course of everyday life, we're worshiping. Whew. And that's just the introduction of the first three verses. Now the psalmist takes us on three sets of seven. As we've been overwhelmed in his call to worship, he gives us three sets of seven that give us clues on how to worship. The first three are seven declarations of God's character. Look at verses four through six. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared or awed above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. What the psalmist is saying is that God stands alone. All of the other things that you would put confidence in are idols that will fail you at some point, but God stands alone in His ultimate character. Uh, If God never did anything else for us, He would still be worthy of our praise. Now, we can't conceive of that because the way we experience God is in how He reveals Himself to us. But if God did nothing, we would still be on our faces before Him. Um, I'm always theologizing our hymns and songs while we sing. We came to this line today. It's always been a curious one. And Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy daily attend thee. Okay, we get that. We understand those things. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if his love he befriend thee. I would change that from if when his love befriends thee. Because it's already out of the bounty that we're acknowledging all of these things that God has done. Ascribe glory to him. Everything else is a worthless idol. Uh, Walter Brueggemann's a great scholar in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he says this, The psalm is a celebration that the future now belongs to God, not to feeble idols, who are in fact agents of chaos. Praise must articulate this renewed understanding in song. A new song must be sung for a new orientation. So here we stand in the face of 2017. The psalmist has given us a new song. Acknowledge how God is different. Then he gives us seven sacrificial activities. Look at them. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. You're starting to read scripture. You're becoming Hebrew scholars now. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Your minds are starting to wonder what's going on. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. These are all actions. It takes initiative. Worship is a verb. You prepare for it. You exercise your will in it. You don't just intellectualize your worship. You come to the place of worship. You bring an offering. You express it to the Lord because He's worthy of this praise that we would bring to Him. And then seven praiseworthy declarations. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, the peoples in his faithfulness. Basically, what the psalmist is saying is join your voices with what creation is already doing. As Pastor Nathan reminded us this morning, every moment in our life can have a connection point, both good and bad, that points to the fact that God is over creation. Snow, as much as I dislike it, I feel calling to Florida as well. In it is an expression of God's good news to us. And if we will make our eyes open and allow our speech to follow inanimate creation, we will enter into this song. We join in praising His name. Now, I've been giving you some clues on the text, and you've been listening to the numbers. 3, 7, and 12 are really important. At the very center of all worship is this name, Yahweh. Uh, fascinating to me that Pastor Nathan chose this as his pastor sermon this morning. He had no idea, because I've been gone all week, that I was going to make this reference to Yahweh. It reminds me, because I'm going to talk about the flow of our worship in a few moments, that God, by His Spirit, is directing everything that we do here. That whole aspect of Yahweh, uh, the tetragrammaton, uh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh was the special name that had been revealed to the people of God when Moses was before the burning bush. All the names of God are important. Elohim, the Creator God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Any of those would evoke praise. But Yahweh was special. Adonai. When the people heard that, it made them feel really good inside. And this psalm is an orientation back to Yahweh. The actual writing of the psalm is when the Ark of the Covenant would have been brought back into the temple. So the presence of God, the symbol of the presence of God is coming in and there's this expectation of meeting Him. And so as you're reading this, you're counting the names of Yahweh. His name is only mentioned 11 times. Now for us, that doesn't mean anything, but for the Hebrew people would have been like, screech! Where's the twelfth name of Yahweh? Well, in verse 11, let the heavens be glad is an acronym which spells out Y-H-W-H. What the psalmist was showing to the people that Yahweh is embedded even to the things you don't see. The worship is all about Him. Uh, I tell you, I theologize worship all the time. We sang this uh, chorus today, we are here for you. We are here for you. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? You know how many times people say to me, I didn't like that in worship. That's okay to have an opinion. We all like things. I guess the better question would be, did Yahweh like that? Just saying out loud. Because we come here because the whole story is about Yahweh and bringing praise to Him. One more piece, if you just stick with me on the text. This is one of those days I wish I had a big whiteboard and I'd be drawing circles and connecting words and moving you all along. 
threes, sevens, three sets of seven. In the middle of the second set of seven, in the fourth declaration, it says this, bring an offering. So the worship moves like this. And the pinnacle was the people bringing out of their bounty. The actual word in Hebrew was for the grain offering. It was tangible that they were to bring before the Lord. It represented that God was the one who was going before them, that everything in their life, from the breath of their life to the food they ate, was coming from His hands. And from the beginning, out of the bounty of how He had provided for them, they were to bring an offering to Him. This is the pinnacle of the worship experience. The people had gathered, and now they were singing to God, but now they were bringing offering to Him that He would be acknowledged as the Holy One. So what's my so what this morning? The primary motivation to generosity is worship, and the primary motivation uh, to um, giving is worship. The only reason to be generous, no, that's not fair. The primary reason to be generous is because of the generosity of God. Having been people who have been overwhelmed by His generosity in our life, we recognize the largeness of God and it calls us to bring robust offerings into His house. The psalmist says, ascribe glory to the Lord. Does God need glory ascribed to Him? No. God does not gain anything off of my worship. It doesn't improve his status. It doesn't make him feel better about himself. It does give him pleasure, but he doesn't need to be ascribed glory. Does God need my offering? Is God in heaven wringing his hands and saying, how am I going to finance the kingdom of God this year? (laughs) He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God does not need me to ascribe glory to Him. God does not need my offering. I need to ascribe glory to God. I need to give offering so that I will become generous out of the bounty of who He is. You see, grace received and grace promises could be blocked in our life if we hang on to it. Grace and generosity are only valuable and increase when we pass them on to others. Grace begets grace, generosity begets generosity, and as I am generous, it is a fruitful statement that I am a grace-saturated person. So when I come to church and I bring doxology to God, I am acknowledging that He is the center of everything, and I'm giving testimony outward, encouraging all the rest of us to do the same when we don't have the courage to get there, because there's some Sundays you come here and you don't have what it takes to ascribe glory to God. And you'll get on the tail of someone else who's doing it, and they'll carry you through to the next stage. That's the power of the worshiping community. Now, let me just theologize a little bit with you, our worship service here. There's three distinct parts of our worship service. Some of you have heard me do this before, but we're always a growing and changing body, so it's important to remember what you're doing when you come here. The opening section is adoration. If you're at the 9 o'clock, there's an introit by the choir, and when the choir begins singing, I begin 
in my mind thinking I'm moving from ordinary to sacred space. Now, all of life is sacred. You hear me say this. You worship from Monday to Saturday, but there's something unique about the pinnacle of praise when we come together as the body of Christ. We're putting a bow on everything that we've done all week in worship. Uh, when I hear the uh, beginning of the organ, my mind's starting to shift. I'm entering into God's space now. God saturates this space with His presence. He manifests so that we can experience Him and offer this worship of praise. We sing hymns, we pray prayers, we announce the Apostles' Creed because Jesus said, worship in spirit and in truth. We bring an offering and we finish with ushers with uh, their hands up with an offering. It's doxology to God. We're not primarily giving to the church budget. We're not primarily giving to support Diana. We're not primarily giving so that we can feed the poor in Stamford. Those are some end results of it, but in true factor, the motivation for bringing a robust offering to God is the glory of God, His kavod. And so when I measure my offering, I don't measure it how it appears according to the church budget. I measure it according to the glory of God and what He wants to do to reveal His glory. Because as generosity is released in us, it will be released in our community. As grace is released in us, it will be released in our community. And this community needs glory. We've got a lot of sparkle, but we need glory. I should get an amen on that one. I guess the Holy Spirit should get amen because I never thought of that on my own. Then we move to body life. We have a children's sermon. It's not really about the teaching, though today it was amazing how God linked the teaching into what was going on here. That's, this is God's family room. We're celebrating body life. We turn and greet one another. We have announcements about what's going on in the church, and then we have prayer. And then finally, we move to word and sacrament. It's a clear arc that we think through every week. But as we're thinking through it and have our plans, the Holy Spirit is always seeding his hand into it. Pastor Nathan chose his pastor sermon apart from me. I had no idea. I've been gone all week teaching. God gave him that word for hallelujah, which right out of this psalm. Anna chose songs this morning. I don't tell her what to sing. They were so on. If I come here and wonder about if this message is going to land, all I have to do is wait for him and praise song. My soul starts rising up because I go, I know God has a message. He's been speaking to other people this week. And in the process, we get to meet him. But the pinnacle is the doxology when we give offering. When I came to Stanwich, the offering used to be after the announcements. And as I was here for a while, it just didn't feel right to me. What we were communicating is we just gave announcements about all of the activities of the church. Offering goes to the activities of the church. So I theologized with the deacons and I said, bring the offering back up to the adoration because the primary motivation for offering, the primary motivation for generosity is the glory of God. Changes how I think about my offering from week to week. So what's the now what? Scripture says to love God with all of our being. So let me just give you three things, head, hand, and heart. Love God with your mind, and so think theologically about the offering that you bring to Him. Uh, some of you write out checks. I still like the physical process of writing out a check. 
I do all my other banking online, but there's something about offering, because I've been doing it for so long, it just feels better to write it, put it in the basket. Some of you hit a button, and money goes from your bank account directly to the church's account through the website. Some of you transfer securities. That's great stewardship because you're saving taxes, which means you can give more and be generous in other ways. And what I want to say about this is don't let it become something you quit thinking about. When you write out your check, when you hit your button to transfer the funds, when you transfer those securities, sing doxology. It's worship to the Lord. See, as you theologize into that, the bounty of God's going to become bigger in your life. Now, hear what I said. I didn't say you're going to get more money. I said the bounty of God. Because as you give out of doxology, all of a sudden, whether you have little or a lot, as Paul says, I learned to be content with little or a lot, there is praise that comes out of your life. It's the reflex of mentally doing it over and over and over. Hearts, ask God in these next days to search your heart to show you what's really going on with your generosity. Do you really have a generous heart? You may be generous with your time, but cheap with your money. You may be generous with your money, but cheap with your time. Both errors will keep God's grace from growing. God wants you to be generous with everything in your life. We've gotten a little guide. It's called Generosity, How God's Radical Grace Changes Our Perspective on Money and Possessions. 20 days of short devotionals, one page that you can walk through to allow God to search your heart. We got these for you. You can pick one up on the way out. For 20 days, as we're going through this series, allow God to search your heart. You know, uh, Scripture says that David had a heart after God. One of the signs of his heart being after God is that there was a time when there was an offering that was going to be given, and someone wanted to step in David's place and do it for him, and David said, I will not give to the God, God that which does not cost me. He knew that generosity was the ongoing reflection that he was God's anointed. And then finally, allow your hands to be freely given to God. Because many of you like to do your banking online or you prefer to transfer funds, we've been thinking about this as a team. How do we create a weekly opportunity to re-address that I want to be generous before God? And so we came up with this idea. There's going to be cards in your pew starting next week. Well, there'll be an opportunity for you to covenant with God out of your generosity because maybe you're not bringing a physical offering and you miss that opportunity of worship, but you can put it in the back basket. Now, I want you to hear this. We're not doing this so that people next to you know that you gave an offering. That's not what this is about. This is to trigger within you the embodiment week after week that you are giving doxology to God and that you want your life to flow with generosity. Let this year be the year of generosity. Generosity received and generosity given. It will touch every aspect of your life. I heard a powerful story this week. Around Christmas time, I get to see generosity expressed in this community over and over financially. 
It's powerful. I had at least four people come up to me before Christmas from this congregation and say, I know there are people in this congregation that are having difficult times. God has blessed me more than I, than I need. Can you give me some people that I can just anonymously bless to help them in their financial need? What a great thing to be able to be a conduit of that kind of blessing. But I heard what I think is even a greater expression of generosity this week. There's a man in our church who takes the train every day to work in New York City, and there's a homeless woman that lives uh, on the street on his way to work. And on his way to work, he doesn't just give her food or money. Sometimes he doesn't. Every time he sees her, he stops and gives her a big hug. When I heard that, I, I almost started weeping. That is the ultimate expression of generosity. A life that has experienced the fullness of God. His boss saw that once and said, what are you doing? Had no clue. Because unless it's grace received and grace promised, there's a hanging on in life. 2017, the year of generosity. Amen.